Good morning. For the uh, first couple chapters of Romans, we have been looking over the past month, um, Paul has been going into detail about how, um, pretty much how awful all humanity is. Every single person um, has turned away from God. Every single person is fully deserving of God's justice. And, um, and he's described a situation that is um, where every single person alive is helpless, hopeless. There is nothing that we can do to solve our problem, to solve the problem of our sin and our unrighteousness. And then he gets to chapter 3, verse 21, and he says, but now, but now, right at the beginning of that verse. And, And what he's saying is what he's about to say to us is in contrast to everything that he's been saying. What he's about to say to us is the solution, the remedy to the problem that he's laid out for the first basically two and a half chapters. And so I would encourage you to listen. I would argue that this is, um, this is one of the most crucial passages to understand in, in the entire New Testament and the entire Bible. So listen to God's word as I read. I'm reading chapter 3, verses 21 to 31. It's printed in your order of worship if you don't have a Bible, but I encourage you to follow along in your Bible if you have it. It says this, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus." Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the fact that you are a God who wants to communicate to us, who wants to speak to us, who wants us to know you and see you and understand you. We thank you that you've given us your word and we at the same time acknowledge that it's not always really easy to understand it all. And we pray that your spirit would work in our minds and in our hearts, that we would see you clearly this morning, that we would see Jesus clearly this morning, and that we would be drawn closer to you. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, I, I've got to say, the culture that we live in, as I look at the world, as I look at especially in the United States and, and our area, we, we are just so confused and mixed up, especially about what we need. We have a really hard time identifying what is truly a, a real need or not. You know, I was, I was thinking about, you know, what, what are some things that, that we don't realize we need, but we actually do need? I want to think of some examples of that sort of thing, some things that we don't realize we need, but we need. And so I, I, I plugged that into Google to search and see what came up. You know, what are some things that we don't know we need, but we, but we absolutely need? And one of the first things that came up was um, an Amazon link to a, a set of buttons that help teach, you, um, to help teach your dog how to talk. Now I realize that there are probably many dog owners in here that are like, I gotta search for that later when I get home. I need that. But it's just, I mean, it's just so absurd, you know, that, that we have so much, we have beyond everything that we could possibly need, that the, the first thing that comes up, you know, this is what you're not thinking about that you actually need is a set of buttons that help you teach your dog, your dog how to talk, right? Um, so that your dog can tell you, you know, they're a little sleepy, they wanna take a nap. It's, it's crazy. Um, we, I think we, we have a real um, problem understanding what we really do need, you know? Um, I have a challenge this morning because I think this passage tells us about something that we all desperately need. It is a critical need of each one of us, and yet I don't think any of us really think about it all that much. And the need that I'm talking about is the need for righteousness. How many of you guys are thinking on a daily basis, boy, I need some righteousness today, right? None of us are really thinking about how desperately we need righteousness. And yet, I think that's what Paul says we all need more than anything else. After he's laid out this, for the first two and a half chapters, he's talking about how all of us have this serious, serious problem. The most serious problem that all of us face is our sin, is the fact that we have turned our backs on God. And so what we, what we need is, is what he says is displayed by God. It's, it's righteousness. It's the righteousness of God that he has accomplished for us. And first of all, you might be being like, well, that's interesting, you know, but why should I care? Why should I care about righteousness? It's just a big word. I don't even use the word righteousness all that much in my life. Why should I care? What, in fact, is righteousness? Why is it something that I need? Well, from a very basic perspective, I would say that righteousness, you could define it this way, that it is, it is doing what is right in God's eyes, okay? Righteousness, you could look at it from this perspective, that it's doing what is right in God's eyes. And, or, you know, God has given us commands. He's given us a, a, a very clear understanding in, his Bible, in, the, in the Bible about what he wants from us. And he set a standard for us. So righteousness is meeting that standard of how he made us to live. And another way you could look at it is, is that righteousness is living life the way it should be lived. Living life the way that it should be lived thinking the way I should think, treating others the way I should treat them, speaking the way that I should speak, the way that I was meant to speak by God when he created me. That is what righteousness is. And I would argue that righteousness is really, really crucial for at least three reasons. 
At least three reasons. One, the Bible tells us that without righteousness, our relationship with God is broken. Our relationship with God is, is, is broken, that, that, that there, is, there is distance, there is separation between us and God because we are not righteous, because none of us live as we should. And so there is distance, there is alienation from God because of that. God is perfect and he is righteous, and if we are unrighteous, we cannot share the same space. So that's one of the reasons that it's, that it's absolutely crucial, because we were made to live in the presence of God. We were made to live in an intimate relationship with God. And so without righteousness, we cannot experience that. Secondly, righteousness is important because, because as I said, righteousness is living as we should. And so when we don't live as we should, when none of us live as we should, then that creates dysfunction in the way that we experience life, in the way that we experience our relationships. They're not the way they should be. Because so many of us are focused primarily on ourselves and on our needs and on our wants, and so our relationships are broken and aren't what they should be. Our uh, response to how things, what, what happens in our lives, our emotions, you know, the things that we think about, the things that we want, those are all dysfunctional and broken because we don't have righteousness. And thirdly, I would say on top of that, righteousness is directly connected to our sense of value and our sense of significance, our sense of worth. One of the verses here is, it's verse 23, says all have sinned. That's another way for saying all are unrighteous. All have sinned and they fall short of the glory of God. What is glory? I, I talked about this a, a while ago in the Old Testament when the word glory means weight, it means heaviness, right? And so, because we are unrighteous, we fall short of the glory that we were made for, the, the sense of, of weight, the sense of significance, the sense of value, the sense of worth. So without righteousness, we also live with a constant sense, maybe it's just at the back of our mind, of the fact that we don't measure up, a constant sense of, of longing to be full, to be significant. Okay, so, so that's why we need righteousness. We need righteousness because without righteousness, our, 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 our relationship with God is broken, our experience of life is broken, and our feeling of our satisfaction, we're dissatisfied with life. And so we need righteousness for all of those reasons. Um, and as I've already said, the Bible and the first three chapters of Romans reminds us that no one is righteous. No one is righteous. In fact, last week, we just looked at that verse in verse 10 of chapter 3. It says, none is righteous, no, not one. None of us, none of us live our lives as we should. Whether you are the, the, the most religious person in the world, you are not righteous. You are no more righteous than the person that you look at and you're like, that guy is the worst possible person I could possibly imagine. None of us are righteous. We all have this same problem. It's something that none of us have, and we can't get on our own. We need God to accomplish righteousness for us, and that's what this passage is about. I'm going to do something I've never done before as I've preached, but as I was looking at this passage and I did the outline for the message, I was like, I have to address all these things, and I can't fit them all into one sermon. So this is going to be a part one, okay? I'm only going to cover the, the first point of the sermon, so do not despair, 
okay? As we get, you know, 20 minutes in and you're like, he's still on part one. I'm only going to cover part one today, and we're going to talk about how we, we're going to talk about how righteousness is accomplished today, and then next week we're going to talk more about how we receive righteousness, how we live out righteousness, so please make sure you come back. But today we're just going to talk about how God accomplishes righteousness, all right? And there's three big words that he uses here in this passage that some of them we, we never use at all, some of them we don't use that often, but he uses three kind of big words to help us understand how God accomplishes righteousness for us. And that's what I want to just focus on this morning. The first word, he, it's the first big word that we never use. I mean, give me, show me hands if, if, if you've ever, if you've used the word propitiation this past week. <laughs> Two weeks ago, Brian did, Yeah. Very few of us use the word propitiation. Most of us don't know how to pronounce the word propitiation. You know, when you come to this passage, if you've been asked to read this passage aloud in some group, you're probably like, I'm terrified. I don't know how to pronounce that thing. None of us use the word propitiation. What does the word propitiation mean? Well, first of all, look at verses 23 to 25. He says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith, okay? So what does he mean when he says that God put Jesus forward as a propitiation by his blood? What is a propitiation? Well, a propitiation is a word that is from the, 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 the ceremonial um, worship life of Israel. Um, it was, a propitiation is a sacrifice that is put forward in order to uh, turn away wrath, in order to turn away judgment, okay? So in a sense, a propitiation is a sacrifice that shields those behind it from experiencing wrath or judgment or anger. That's what a propitiation is, okay? And so what he's saying is that Jesus, by his blood, that's a reference to his death, that his death is a sacrifice that turns away the wrath of God. It turns away the anger of God towards our unrighteousness. That every single one of us, in the way that we've lived, in the way that we've turned away from God, Isaiah 53 just talks about that, how we've all turned away, right? We've all turned away from God, and we're, we insist on trying to live life on our own terms rather than trying to submit ourselves and surrender ourselves to God. Because of that, we have earned ourselves the justice of God. And the Bible in multiple places talks about it as that we've, we've, we are due the wrath of God. We've earned the wrath of God for, for our unrighteousness. But what God has done is he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross. And when he died on the cross, what he did is he, he took upon himself the punishment, the wrath of God that we deserve to bear. And in doing that, he turns God's wrath aside from us so that we don't have to fear it. Okay, that's what a propitiation is. That is part of how God accomplishes righteousness for us. Um, there's a, a really good illustration of this, I think. And uh, I've heard it multiple places, but I'm not sure if I've ever shared it. There's a guy named Ernest, Ernest Gordon, who was a Scottish POW in World War II. I don't know if you've heard this story before. But uh, he wrote this book, Miracle on the River Kwai, to tell about his experiences as a POW in Japan. And uh, all of these 
prisoners, all these the Scottish soldiers were prisoners of war, and they were treated brutally by their captors. And, and every day they were marched out to, to help build a railway. And, uh, and, and at the end of one of these days, well, they, they were treated so brutally that it was just kind of like they were all in a survival mentality. You know, they, they didn't care about one another at all. They were just trying to survive and look out for themselves. Well, they, at the end of one of the days when they were working, um, they finished working and they counted the shovels that were being used and there was one shovel missing. And the Japanese guards were furious because they believed that one of the, one of the, the POWs had, had stolen a shovel. And they, they went off in a tirade and he was pointing his rifle at everyone and he was saying, if, you know, if, if no one admits this, he's, he's, he said, all die, all die, all die. He was, he was about to kill everyone. And then after just a few minutes, a little while, one of the POWs stepped forward, one of the Scottish soldiers stepped forward, admitting that he had done it. And the Japanese soldier took his rifle and beat him, and beat him, and beat him until he killed him, right there in front of everybody else. They ended up going back to camp that day, and they recounted the shovels, and, and actually none of them were missing. It was a miscount. And this man was innocent. He hadn't taken a shovel, and yet he stepped forward and took the, the anger from the Japanese soldier and bore it so that the rest of them would not be killed. That is a picture of propitiation right there. That is a picture of what Christ has done for us. He is the innocent one. We are guilty and unrighteous, and yet he took the anger of God, the pain, as he went to the cross, you know? And, and he experienced the, the, the weight of God's wrath, the Father's wrath upon himself so that we wouldn't have to fear it. So God accomplishes righteousness for us, number one, through a propitiation, through a sacrifice of what Christ has done. But secondly, he uses this word justify a lot in this passage. He says we're justified over and over again. And the word pops up multiple times, right? One really important thing to note about the Greek word for justify or justification is it's actually almost the same word as righteousness. The, the same root word is used for both of these words, righteousness and justification. And so really, the, the literal meaning of justification is to declare someone righteous or to consider someone to be righteous. So what he's saying over and over again when he talks about the fact that, that those who have sinned are justified through Jesus, means that through the work of Jesus, God now declares that we are righteous, even though we are not. Even though we all are unrighteous, God has looked at the work of Jesus, and he's gonna, he says, I'm going I'm to count his righteousness as yours, and I'm going to consider you righteous, even though you're not. I'm going to justify you. I'm going to treat you as if you are righteous, even though you are not. That's what it means to be justified. It's actually a word from the, from the legal system, from the courtroom. A judge would justify people. The opposite of justification is condemnation. And so instead of being condemned for our unrighteousness, God says, you are justified. You are righteous. I'm going to treat you as righteous because of what Christ has done and because of who Christ is. Christ, the only one who has perfectly obeyed God, the only one who has lived life as it should be lived, he is the righteous one. 
And so somehow God says, through Jesus, I'm gonna look at you and I'm gonna count his righteousness as yours and I'm gonna treat you that way. Another, I think, good illustration of this, and I don't think we often think of this as a good illustration of this, but I think it's a great illustration, is, the, is the, the story from Luke 15 of the prodigal son. You guys are all, I'm sure, familiar with that story of, of the two sons, the younger son who goes to his father, and he's like, Dad, give me the inheritance, you know, which is incredibly offensive. He's basically saying, Dad, I want to live as if you're dead. Give me the money you're going you're gonna to give me when you were going to die, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take it, and I'm going to live life on my own. And so, so his father gives him his inheritance, and, right, and it says he goes off into a far country, and he squanders it all. He lives foolishly. He lives, you would argue, in a very unrighteous way. And he ends up coming, making a mess of his life, and he ends up coming to the end of himself, and he's like, I, I can't live like this. I've got to go home. Even the servants in my father's house you know, have more than I do now. And so he turns around and he goes home and he comes up with this, with this speech he's going to give to his father. He's, like, he's, like, he's planning on saying, Father, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. In other words, I'm unrighteous. I'm not worthy, right? And so he comes back and then what happens? It says, while he's still a long way off, the father sees him and the father runs to him and the father embraces him. And, what is the, and, and, and the son starts to give him his speech. Father, I'm, I'm no longer worthy. I'm unrighteous, right? But the father cuts him off. And what does the father say? What's the first thing out of the father's mouth? Quick! Quick! Get a robe and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger. This is my son. Kill the fattened calf. Let's celebrate. The father treats him as if he is his son, treats him as if he is righteous, even though he is not. In a sense, he justifies his son. He declares his son righteous, even though his son has proved that he is unworthy. And he treats him that way, as he celebrates, as he celebrates with him. That's what it means to, ju- to be justified to have God look at us even though we are unrighteous and to say, no, you are righteous. I'm going to declare that you are righteous because of what Jesus has done and who he is. I'm going to look at you and I'm going to treat you. I'm going to think about you as if you are righteous, only righteous, as if you are perfect, as if you have done everything you should. I'm going to celebrate over you. And then the third word he uses is redemption. In verse 24, Right? He says that we're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. To redeem something is the, the, the language of the marketplace. It's, it's when you pay, you pay a price in order to buy something back, in order to set something free. Often in that culture, a slave could be redeemed. A person who is, who is, who is in slavery could be, could be bought with a price. They could pay a, a price and they could set that person free from their slavery. And one thing we need to recognize is that being unrighteous is not just a status, but it's also a condition. Being unrighteous is not just a status, but is it, it's a condition of our heart. It's a condition that we cannot escape. It's a condition where we, we put ourselves first. Where we, we cannot not escape our insistence that that. I need to look out for myself, first and foremost, before I look out for others. 
I need to think first and foremost about what I want and what I need and how I'm uncomfortable and, and all of my pain. I need to think about myself first. It's a condition that I cannot escape. Being self-centered. That's at the core of being unrighteous and we need to be set free from it. We need to be set free in order to live a life that is different. A life that is more in line with who God is and what he has done and what he desires for us. And so this is again what Jesus has done in, in coming. He, he, he comes in order to die and rise again to set us free from being controlled by our self-centered inclinations. Being controlled by our unrighteousness. That is why Jesus has come, to set us free from that in order to live a life that is different. One more illustration that I've, I've used before and I will certainly use it again, and um, it's, it's from Les Mis, about Jean Valjean. And if you've never read the book or seen any of the movies, you should read it and see them all. Whether, no matter how good or bad they are, you should see them all because the Les Mis is one of the greatest stories that helps us to meditate on the gospel, on how God accomplishes righteousness for us and how we should respond to him. But if you are unfamiliar with the story, it's about this man, Jean Valjean, who has been imprisoned for stealing a loaf of bread for his family. And he's in, he lives in prison for years and years and years. And finally, he's let go on parole, but he's not really free because he has to carry his papers with him wherever he goes, and his, his criminal past and his, his, his uh, status as a prisoner follows him everywhere. He can't get a job. No one trusts him. No, everyone treats him like an outcast. Anybody, when they see his papers, they, they, they run the opposite direction. And yet, he comes into contact. He meets this bishop who invites him into his home. And the bishop gives him a warm meal. And the bishop gives him a place to stay for the night. And, and he shows him hospitality. And he shows him kindness that he's, that he's never experienced from anyone else for, for as long as he can remember. And how does Jean Valjean respond to this? Well, he, he's enslaved to a certain way of living, a certain way of thinking. And so his response to the kindness and generosity of, of the bishop is to, in the middle of the night, take all of the silverware, all of the silver that the bishop owns, and he steals it and runs out of self-preservation, thinking of himself first and foremost. And, and he leaves, and he steals all of the silver. And then not long after that, the police <coughs> capture him and bring him back to the bishop. And the police say to the bishop, you know, they're like, he, he said that you gave this to him, but we know the story. We know the story. We know that he stole it. We came so that he could give it back to you, and then we'll put him away for good. And how does the bishop respond then? The bishop says, Jean Valjean, you left in such a hurry. I meant to give you the candlesticks as well. And Jean Valjean not only keeps the silver, but the bishop gives him these candlesticks made of silver as well. A fortune. That is grace, right? And, and, and the, the police, you know, they're dumbfounded, but they leave. And, and, and then what the bishop sell, says to Jean Valjean next is this. He says, Jean Valjean, with this silver, I have bought your soul for God. I have purchased you. I have purchased your life 
that you might begin to live differently. That you might begin to serve God and live in a way that reflects the goodness of God. That is a picture of redemption. As the bishop gives this exorbitant fortune to this criminal in order to set him free from his past, in order to give him a new future. And this is again a picture of the gospel. It's a picture of the way that God accomplishes righteousness for us. 1 Peter 1.18 says, says that we were bought not with, with, with gold or silver, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus gave his life as a price to pay for our freedom to be set free from a past, from being controlled by our, our guilt and our shame, from being controlled by our, our tendency to live only for ourselves. Jesus has given him his life to set us free, to redeem you. This is how God accomplishes righteousness, through these things, by propitiation, by, as a sacrifice that shields us from his judgment. As, as one who justifies us, through Jesus, God looks at us and he says, I'm going to treat you as righteous, not as unrighteous. I'm going to declare that you are righteous, even though you're not. And, and as a, a, a price that redeems us, to give us hope that, that we actually might become more righteous. Make new decisions. And so what do we do with this? What do we do with this? Well, next week, as I said, we're going to talk more about how do we receive this righteousness and how do we live it out. But just to start, um, one thing the, these words should drive us to, one thing, the way that God accomplishes righteousness should do to us, it should drive us to our knees in worship of God, in worship of Jesus, right? What, what does he say here? The very first verse, it says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. The righteousness of God is displayed. That is, that's what he's saying. God is displaying his righteousness through the work of Jesus and what he has done. So not only is God accomplishing righteousness for us, but he's displaying his own righteousness in the way that he does it. Look further down at verses 25 and 26, where he says this, all that he did, you know, the propitiation, the justification, the redemption, it was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. You know, throughout the Old Testament, the Israelites had been given these laws to make sacrifices to pay for their sin, but the reality was none of those sacrifices of all those animals, they couldn't really pay for their sin. They were just meant to point them to the reality of the payment that Jesus was going to make. And so God was, was letting all of these sins slide, in a sense, it looked like. But the reality that he, he sent his son, and his son actually bore our sin, shows that God wasn't letting those things slide. God is a, a just judge. And that he, he continues on. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God is just. He doesn't just let people off the hook. He doesn't just declare us righteous even though we don't deserve it. He, o he only declares us righteous because he's punished our sin in Jesus. He is a just judge. He is full of justice through and through. But not only is he full of justice, he's the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He's loving and merciful and gracious. This is God's righteousness on display. He's perfect in his justice, but he's also perfect 
and his grace and his mercy and his love and his kindness. And going back to the very beginning of the passage again, he says, this righteousness has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. He's reminding the the Roman church, God has had this in the works from the beginning of creation, throughout the entire Old Testament. He's been talking about how he was going to do this, how Jesus was going to accomplish righteousness for us through his sacrifice, through justification, through redemption. This isn't something that he just thought up on the fly, that he had to adjust to. No, that God has been, been planning this. He is perfectly wise. It all displays the righteousness of God, and so we should worship him. We should worship him for his righteousness. Even though we are unrighteous, he, he shows us what righteousness is. And that should drive us to our knees in worship. But also, I think one thing that is true and again, I said next week we're going to talk about how do we receive this righteousness. But one thing that is true is that as you behold righteousness, as we look at the righteousness of God, that has the power in and of itself to begin to change us. The more that we look at the righteousness of God, that sets our hearts ablaze to want to, to begin to reflect that righteousness in our own lives, to want to begin to change ourselves. Coming back to that story about Ernest Gordon, you know, when he talks about the POWs in Japan. Um, he, he starts off talking about how everybody, because it was such a brutal environment, everybody was just looking out for themselves. And they would even, you know, commit crimes against one another just out of self-preservation. But then this shovel incident happens. And he says things changed in that prison camp. Things changed. And, and, and people started to, as they witnessed in a sense, a picture of righteousness, of this innocent man stepping forward and taking the blame and even giving his life out of love for his fellow prisoners. When they witnessed that righteousness, that began, that, that gave them a glimpse of the righteousness of God, in a sense. They started to think about God more. They started to think about their own mortality and, and, and the answers they needed to have to, to their own death. They built a little chapel. They started meeting. They started praying every night together. And then he, he writes this. He describes it this way. He says, death was still with us, but we were slowly being freed from its destructive grip. We were seeing for ourselves the sharp contrast between forces that made for life and those that made for death. Selfishness, hatred, envy, jealousy, greed, laziness, and pride were anti-life. Love, heroism, self-sacrifice, sympathy, mercy, integrity, and creative faith were the essence of life, turning mere existence into living in the truest sense. These were gifts of God to men. There was still hatred, but there was also love. There was death, but there was also life. God had not left us. He was with us, calling us to live the divine life in fellowship. As they beheld this little tiny glimpse of righteousness lived out, it opened their eyes to what righteousness really does, is that it creates life. That that life is found in righteousness. And as we behold Jesus, the righteousness of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus, the love of Jesus, 
the plan of God through Jesus. As we behold his righteousness, it, it begins to, to, to open our eyes to the life that is found and a life that is lived pursuing him, beholding more of him, and reflecting him. The act of Jesus Christ, dying for those who are unrighteous, helps us to know that God has not left us. It frees us from the destructive grip of death, and it opens up a path for real righteousness to be lived out, to to create more life in the people around us. And then all, all of life, every day of your life, then becomes a but now. But now, because of what Jesus has done. But now, I have a different way of looking at things. I have, a, I have a new hope, but now. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and, and we thank you for um, showing us more of yourself, showing us your righteousness, the perfect plan, the perfect work of Jesus the one who has sacrificed himself for us so that we don't have to fear your judgment, giving himself and his righteousness for us so that we can understand ourselves as ones that you delight in and celebrate and look at as righteous. Father, we pray that you would set us free to begin to live a little bit differently today and take hold of the life that is found in your righteousness today. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. We now have an opportunity.